and welcome to part two of our expected value interviews from Nessus, a sports analytics conference held in Boston last week. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks. Our first episode, posted earlier in the week, featured conversations with Ron Yurko and Danny Chu, who both had presentations related to NFL player tracking data, so be sure to check that out if you missed it. This episode focuses on soccer, talking with Lori Shaw and Sam Gregory about their Nessus presentations. We will start with Lori Shaw, who's a data science fellow at Harvard University, and he also helped organize the conference. Lori has a PhD from Cambridge, where he studied the structure and evolution of dark matter halos in in-body simulations. I don't really know what that means, but it has something to do with astrophysics. He also studied at McGill and Yale, working on other subjects, including cosmology, and he's worked in the hedge fund world before coming to Harvard to study data science. Lori's presentation was on classifying and analyzing team strategy in professional soccer matches. As he'll explain, that means using player tracking data to look at different formations, offensively and defensively, when a team is ahead or behind, etc. So here's the first of two conversations on this podcast with Harvard Data Science Fellow Lori Shaw. talking with Lori Shaw, data science fellow at Harvard University. He had a paper here at, or a presentation here at Nessus entitled Classifying and Analyzing Team Strategy in Professional Soccer Matches. Lori, let's just start kind of uh, what made you want to go this direction with the paper presentation that you're doing here? First of all, thanks very much for uh, inviting me onto your podcast. So I guess the, the reason why we started off looking at formations is that we wanted to, to use all the, uh, the tracking data that we had in hand to try to understand, try to find patterns and structures um, in the game of football. Um, so the, the beautiful thing about tracking data is that it, you know, it follows, allows you to follow all the motions of players on the pitch. And um, so one of the, the overarching projects that we want to work on is, is to try to see if we can measure team strategy effectively. So can we measure the set of instructions that a manager um, gives his team, both as a group, you know, and formations is an example of that, but also as um, individuals, so the individual player instructions, um, down to marking a player or how they should, um, to whom they should pass the ball and what types of passes or what kind of runs should they make off the ball. Um, and, uh, and tracking data allows you to do all of that. Um, so the paper that I presented today was, was really the first step in that work was to, um, to consider team formations. Um, so, and by that I mean the, um, the positioning of players relative to one another. Um, and I guess the main, one of the main extensions of this piece of work compared to what's been done previously is to think about the different configurations that teams take up um, when they're defending um, to when they're attacking. So what, I guess the question from a kind of non-data perspective, like what's the advantage of doing this? What do you hope to accomplish by doing it this way instead of, you know, a coach or a scout watching a bunch of games from this team and telling you, here's what they do. What can you do with this that maybe is better, faster, whatever, than it would be from an old school method? I mean, I think one of the advantages of relying on data generally is the ability to kind of crunch through very large numbers of games and look for patterns that... um, that it would be more difficult for a human uh, to pick up, you know, uh, analyzing just a, a small handful of games. So, for example, um, our methodology allows us to dynamically classify team formations. So, at a given instant of the match, try to say, like, you know, roughly what kind of uh, formation are they playing in, and therefore also to uh, detect changes in formations. Um, and so, one of the, I think, one of the big results from the piece of work, from the work that we've done 
is to is to be able to go through sort of several hundred games and say what are the patterns in terms of how teams react to certain situations um, can we identify um, you know, how a manager might react to going a goal down like what kind of what are the repeated uh, changes in formation um, that he or she may tend to make uh, and indeed in the data that we've looked at we have found teams that um, do identify to demonstrate certain patterns uh, so teams that routinely make the same formation change um, when they're a goal down to um, superior opposition or perhaps when they're um, a goal, sorry, when they're goal down to inferior opposition or a goal up against um, superior opposition. So it's kind of a big shortcut of sorts. Like we might expect, you know, the team changes formation or whatever once they get ahead or behind. And this gives you an easy way to uh, identify A, that it's happening and B, exactly what that change is, right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. As you try to narrow these things down, you know, everyone knows soccer fans, your handful of basic formations and how they can be edited and whatever. How did, as you narrowed it down, like what did you narrow it down to first? And then kind of what did you land on from a uh, formations number? Like how many different things are we talking about from an offensive and defensive perspective? Um, so in terms of the number of different uh, formations, um, so we wanted a very, diff- uh, a very data-driven approach. And so... Uh, we relied very much on unsupervised learning techniques. Um, we created many measures of the types of formations that teams were playing in um, based on observations of real data, and then developed a metric for saying how similar is one formation to another. Uh, and then when you look over a sample of, uh, of several hundred games, um, you can start to group together similar types of formations, um, and we look at formations on and off the ball separately and uh, and say like you know what kind of unique formations did the teams actually use in that sample of matches uh, you know and, that, and what we found is that you know approximately 20 different types of formations that teams would use some of them were predominantly defensive formations so that sort of the player configurations when teams were out of possession of the ball and you know some of the more offensive uh, formations when you know teams were attacking what sort of things like what's the next step with this because this to me seems very much like a very useful building block that you can then do all sorts of other things with. Where do you see, kind of, as you call them, the extensions of this project going as you try to figure out what's next? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of um, extensions and you know this really was the, uh, the first step. Um, I, I would say there are kind of three main directions we want to take this. The first is to, to have a more granular view on game state and the way that teams play in different game states so we've up until now we've predominantly looked at how teams play in and out of possession of the ball um but we'd like to look at how to, how do teams play you know when in transition um when they're trying to establish possession when they're trying to progress the ball at the field and when they're trying to create opportunities and of course on the defensive side you know how do they play uh, in a high press and, and a low press um another element to this is to look at things like what's the relationship between defensive disruption and chance creation um so i mean football is a very territorial game and so you know often the best chances are created when the um the the attacking team makes space in the opponent's team uh, box um but to what degree do they need to disrupt the defense in order to do that and obviously that's very relevant to considering things like the chances created through counter-attacking uh or through high pressing or through you know particularly uh, good pieces of creative play I want to take a step back from this specific presentation and ask you about your background because I think just you know just reading through like what you've done you have you have 
work in astrophysics, you've worked for a hedge fund, now you're here at Harvard and you're doing soccer papers, which is a very interesting thing. Tell me about your academic path and how that kind of all brought you to where you are now. Yes, um, it's been an unusual career. <laughs> um, so I started out in academia and working in astrophysics. Um, so my PhD was looking at how galaxies form in the universe. Um, I guess the sort of the reason I left academia was that I found uh, I wanted to work in a, a sort of more fast-paced um, environment, you know, one in which you're actually applying the, the research that you do. Um, I went to work in finance for a couple of years, um, which was certainly was quite a fast-paced environment, and, and in some ways, you know, almost one of the most educational experiences in terms of learning how to work with lots of different types of data and lots of different statistical techniques. Um, the place where I worked hired people from physics, but also from statist statistics, from, uh, from mathematics, from machine learning, so all sorts of different fields. Um, I went to work for the, um, for the British government in the Treasury Department, um, and that was, you know, one reason for that was that it was a very interesting application. I think working in finance was very technically challenging, but you know, ultimately just wasn't very interested in, you know, the area of, of investment. Um, whereas working for the British government, you felt like you were making decisions that were, you know, important and, and you know, relevant to, to people's lives. And um, and um, so I very much enjoyed doing that. And in, at Harvard, in some ways, my position here kind of brings together a lot of these things because, you know, I really, as a data science fellow, I feel that if nothing, my career has been one in data science, sort of working in different areas, developing different skills and trying to bring the techniques that we use in one area and apply them to another. And, uh, you know, in sports analytics is, you know, almost a perfect example of a cross-disciplinary um, endeavor, you know, you know, one in which there are people who are um, from the hard sciences, from physics, from, from computer science and uh, statistics, but also, you know, people who are interested um, in working in this area from, um, from the business school here, um, particularly sort of the finances of football and uh, uh, or other sports and um, issues like competitive balance. But then the School of Public Health as well, questions such as injuries and uh, fatigue and um, you know other areas such as that. One of the other panelists I was talking to said something about how sports analytics, generally speaking, has become much more accepted or absorbed maybe by the general analytics community over the last you know, five years, 10 years or so. W what do you think about that? And if you agree with it, what are some of the reasons you think maybe the perception of sports analytics has changed from a kind of an academic, greater academic perspective in recent years? I think that's it's completely right. I mean, it, it really is, you know, it feels like in the last five to 10 years, it's really become um, much more of an academic endeavor. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of the advances have done great work by people who, you know, were working in the uh, amateur blogging community. Um, as it's become more data rich, I think, that you know that has really kind of caught the attention of many academics um, who are sort of looking to work in an area where that you know that has been relatively unmined, um, and the the advent of you know event data and now tracking data means that you know there's a lot of scope for looking for interesting signals and trying to understand the sport from a different perspective, um, which is really what you know sports analytics is all about. Uh, one last question: the astrophysics background. How does that, or does it help you as you're looking at, at soccer? Like, mindset, are there you know, literal applications from things you learn there? I'm just, just curious like how the two connect and, and help you out as you're looking at uh, more of the sports stuff. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so you know, I find 
astrophysicists in lots of different areas of uh, of work. Um, it, there are astrophysicists working in the in the British government, um, plenty in finance, and I think one of the reasons for that is you know physics is a very both a very theoretical subject, one in which you're encouraged to learn the sort of fundamental principles, um, the fundamental laws of, of nature, and, and build models that describe how systems work, uh, but one in that's also extremely data-rich, um, and that's particularly true of astrophysics and astronomy, where there are sort of both ground and space-based projects that are surveying the sky, you know, almost continuously, Connecting, uh, collecting vast amounts of data, and so physicists need to be well trained in the in the, uh, the sort of the fundamentals and the theoretical side of things, but also well trained in terms of data analysis and statistics. Um, and you know, I think that's that's you know provides a great training basically to go into like many other fields, including sports analytics. It makes sense when you explain it that way. Laurie Shaw, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks to Laurie Shaw for talking with us here on Expected Value. You can follow Laurie on Twitter at 85point, spell it all out. Our next guest is Sam Gregory, a data scientist at SportLogic, which is a Montreal-based company that focuses on using artificial intelligence in sports analytics. Sam's presentation was entitled Unsupervised Run Type Detection, and somewhat similar to what Danny Chu talked about in our first Nessus podcast, Sam used player tracking data to identify off-the-ball runs that players made with an eye on both pre- and post-match analysis and player recruitment. Sam previously worked at Opta, so he has extensive experience in the soccer analytics world. And after this, Albert Larcada and I will be back to react to the interviews and talk about Nessus. Now, here's the expected value conversation with Sam Gregory. We're joined now by Sam Gregory, Sport Logic Data Analyst. His presentation here at Nessus was called Unsupervised Run Type Detection. This is, as I don't have to tell you, Sam, a soccer presentation. Tell us uh, kind of what, what does that mean? I know it's talking about off-the-ball runs, so tell us kind of what off-the-ball runs are for the uninitiated in soccer and why this project kind of caught your eye. What I was trying to look at was what players are doing off the ball when their team's in possession. So from event data, we get uh, every pass that a player makes, where they make it, but we don't understand what's happening off the ball, uh, so either before a player receives it or even if they don't receive the ball at all. So from tracking data, we can see where what the position of all uh, 22 players are at uh, 25 times per second. So we get an idea of what they're actually doing, how they're creating space. And I think in soccer, more than most sports, what the movement off the ball is incredibly important. I mean, there's a, a famous quote that the average player is only on the ball for three minutes of a 90 minute match. I'm not sure if that's actually true, but <laughs> um, yeah, so what players are doing off the ball is really important. And it's something we haven't really been able to come up with a way to describe or actually measure. Uh, so my project was sort of twofold. One is just to uh, to be able to measure when players are making runs off the ball, uh, and then also to come up with sort of a vocabulary that we can start using consistent words to talk about what players are doing off the ball, and use building blocks to sort of say these group of activities are similar. So give me kind of the layman's version of what you did through this process. Yeah, so the first thing I did was to say you have all these continuous tracks. So you'll have a player and where they are uh, for, every, let's say, for 45 minutes, the entire half, you'll have where they're at every single point. So the first thing I had to do was cut up and say, when is a player actually making an intentional run? So not walking, not jogging, but making an intentional run to move from one place to another. 
so the first thing I did was cut up that. So I looked at when players are uh, moving at a quick speed and accelerating, and then when they decelerate and end the run. Um, so that was the first step, was to just segment everything up into runs. And then I looked at the trajectories of these runs relative to where the player's teammates were. Uh, so not just where it was on the pitch, but where the, the player's teammates were as well and grouped together runs that had a similar trajectory. So runs where the arc was similar, the location relative to teammates was similar, um, and then grouped those together. So what's your, this is an audio medium, obviously, so pictures aren't exactly gonna come across, but tell me visually, like what do you end up with that you can then show someone and say, hey, look what this guy is doing. Visually, what do you have at kind of the end of this process? So. Uh, a coach will say, okay, this in, if you show a coach a clip of a game, they'll be able to say, okay, here, this, is an, this fullback made an overlapping run. But we don't really have any way to track how many overlapping runs that fullback made, what the definition of an overlapping run actually is, um, and sort of figure out how a player is able to affect the game through their overlapping runs. So what we get from the output of this is a series of runs. We'll have uh, every single time that a player made a run, which falls into a specific group. And then we can give those groups names. So I look at a group and say, a group of runs and say, those are all overlapping runs. So now we can say rather than, oh, Hector Bellerin made a lot of overlapping runs that game, we can say Hector Bellerin made seven overlapping runs this game. Uh, and the same with all sorts of runs, which we don't even really have language to describe yet. Uh, so one run that I looked at a lot was runs, um, midfield runs, runs from uh, central midfielders that just move the, move the play from one side of the pitch to the other. And we don't really have a word for that. I mean, it took me a sentence to describe. So the idea is to sort of take those runs as well that aren't as well defined as overlapping runs and say, these runs are all grouped together. Can we come up with a name that really typifies these runs and use them in our analysis? You said something earlier about how one advantage of this uh, methodology, this process, is that you can tweak it super easily. Can you kind of just explain that again and how it just makes this data e a little easier to work with in this, at least in this in form? Yeah, so I, uh, the data that I was working with is from like a top European league. So the first thing I mentioned that I had like acceleration and uh, speed targets that a player had to meet to make a run. That might be very different if you're looking at college soccer, let's say, or MLS. Um, and so that's the first way you can start to tweak this is to look at uh, what is the average velocity of a player in this league? What do we consider a sprint in this league versus uh, just jogging? And the second way would be the actual runs themselves. So I, I chose 70 run types because I thought that looked good. A coach might say, you know what, 70 is too many. I want to know 10 different run types. And so you could easily use this exact same framework, narrow down the number of runs to 10. So I think what I've done essentially is built a framework for identifying and classifying runs, but it's not necessarily this is the Sam Gregory way of how to classify runs and it's the way that everyone should be using. It's more this is a setup of how I, I've thought about the problem and I think can be extended to the way a lot of other people would think about the problem. So you've talked about some ways that you could use this data. What are some of kind of the, the macro applications? So a coach, technical director, whatever comes to you and says, hey, this is cool. How would you suggest I use this? What would you say to him? I think, I said in the talk that I think the number one takeaway is it's just a way to easily query tracking data. So right now with tracking data, it's really hard for coaches to use because it's it's massive. They don't know what to look for. They don't know how to like tell an analyst, even if an analyst knows how to use it, they don't really know how to tell an analyst to get what they want out of it. Whereas this is quite a visual representation and it gives you an actual event that you can look for, which is the run itself. So a coach might look at a map of five different run types and say, that's the run that I want this player to be making, or that's the run that I want uh, 
a potential player that we're looking to sign to be making and they could say okay show me the player who makes the most of these runs in this league that we're scouting in so i think it's just a way of uh, and then they could pull up the video from that as well so it's a way of taking this really complex data set uh, which coaches know they want to use to measure off the ball performance or movement off the ball and be and allow coaches to actually have the power to use that or not just coaches but people in less technical backgrounds to be able to point to what they want and get that from it one thing I found interesting about the conference is that everyone's very aware that what most of these presentations are almost building blocks toward something else, even if we don't know what that something else is. So what, as the buzzword extension, what are the extensions or some possible extensions that you would see from what you've done so far? I think what I've done uh, here is actually in a lot of ways simpler than what some of the like more complex tracking projects have done. So if you look at some of the like really advanced track work that's done been done with soccer tracking data, it's let's like expected possession value is a great example. So this is a model which gives a value to every single every single point of a game. So every single frame of tracking data, you can say what is the probability a goal is going to be scored here. And the problem with that is it's incredibly difficult to distill that down to a coach. You have to inherently trust the model. It's hard to figure out. It's uh, the value changes every single frame. So it's really hard to kind of take this work, which is really it's really interesting, kind of groundbreaking work, and bring it down to a coach's level, or not bring it down to a coach's level, but make it explainable. And I think that this kind of work of uh, taking tracking data and turning it into something that someone can look at and see patterns that they have seen in the game, and then use those patterns to sort of as an entry point into this more advanced modeling, so into things like past probabilities, into things like expected possession value. Um, it's sort of, this work allows, uh, is kind of trying to fill the gap between what actually happens uh, in a professional soccer team and the advanced modeling work that's been done with tracking data. Before you were with SportLogic, you were with Opta, so you've got you know, fairly extensive you know, sports analytics background, we'll say. I'm curious, even before that, what was your kind of path, we'll say, through you know, university, college, on up into where you are now? So kind of, kind of how did you get here? Uh, I mean, I was always interested in sports uh, and statistics. Uh, I, apparently, when I was a kid, I used to try and uh, look through baseball box scores and find errors in the local paper where uh, uh, they'd, <laughs> they'd made an error in the baseball box score. So I was always interested in kind of sports and stats. I think it was mostly because I was interested in sports and good at math growing up. Um, and so it wasn't until I read Moneyball, like everyone else, uh, and got into university that I sort of thought, oh, I wonder if people are doing this in soccer. L found people doing similar work, or doing really at the time pretty basic work in soccer. Um, and I started on a personal blog. I st then I started writing for Sportsnet, uh, which is the was until this last year the uh, broadcaster of the Premier League in Canada. Then I moved to the UK to do my master's. So I did my undergrad in economics and did a master's in economics as well in London. Um, and when I was there, I started doing some consulting for clubs, and from there, I got the job at Opta, and now I'm at SportLogic. Always interesting to me to just see how people get to these jobs that, you know, probably didn't exist, say, when you were in college, something like that. All right, Sam Gregory, data analyst at SportLogic. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks to SportLogic data analyst Sam Gregory for joining us on Expected Value. You can follow Sam on Twitter at GregoryDSam. I'm now joined in the True Media Network studios by Albert Larcata, True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert was also at Nessus last weekend. Albert, what did you take away on the soccer front from the conference? 
sort of my my high level takeaway relates more to the the general tracking data environment in soccer being a little bit different than it is in the American sports. Most leagues uh, everywhere in the world, including Europe, don't actually have tracking data yet. Even the ones that do, there's no uh, sharing agreement between clubs in the different leagues. So if you're a team in Bundesliga, very likely the only tracking data you're getting is on other Bundesliga players. So that limits the usefulness um, in the recruiting area uh, just because you won't have tracking data metrics on a lot of the targets that you're going after in the transfer window, um, which is not something obviously that uh, Major League Baseball, NBA, NFL, et cetera, teams have to deal with because their talent pool is generally all within that one league. Um, so anyway, because of that, I feel like the tracking data research, both publicly and privately, is going to have a lot more use cases in opposition scouting, self-scouting. Uh, so the research that Lori and Sam did focused a lot on those use cases, um, which, again, I think is going to have a lot more value to teams than some kind of player valuation type of metric that's more useful in the recruiting space. Yeah, that that war metric is definitely kind of the you know holy grail or the sexy thing that you want to see kind of come out of analytics. But you're right. What they talked about was less about player valuation, much more about scouting and tactics. And I think that kind of runs right into what I was struck by the similarities between uh, Sam's presentation, the second soccer conversation, and Danny Chu's conversation that we had in his presentation about football. They both kind of did the same thing. Um, identifying routes or runs in different sports using the player tracking data. And it continued, I thought, just kind of a, an overall theme of this conference and, and other conferences of this ilk sometimes. Lots of these presentations are building blocks that will get built upon by you know some of these same researchers whether it's teams leagues whoever it might be but this is the first step in a lot of ways and you know it may just take a lot more time money effort technology to make those next steps and make what they're doing super valuable but you know these are really good starting points and there's also value in these building blocks it's not just a building block but there's some use here and we'll keep adding on to that as a general analytics community and making everything more and more useful as we figure the tracking data out more and more yeah totally agree definitely relates to the tracking data being newish in the uh public space especially if, if, if we're talking about frameworks based off of event level data in some of these sports we're you know, a little bit past that now, but certainly in the tracking space, building out frameworks is right where we are. Yeah, it's certainly exciting to see where we're going to go in these sports that have tracking data just coming to the forefront in the last year or two. That'll wrap up our pair of Nessus podcasts. Thanks again to all four of our guests for taking time to chat with us at the conference. And I hope you enjoyed listening to something a little bit different. A reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get the podcast and keep spreading the word to help us keep growing. On behalf of Albert Larcada and everyone at True Media Networks, I'm Paul Carr. Thank you for listening to Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Thank you.